دارم سلام هر کسی صدای مرده میشنم خوشحال باشین خوب باشین در یه وقت خراب خدا کنه جور باشین که دیگه مهربان باشین تشکر My name is Farah. I'm ethnically Afghan. I've been part of the Afghan diaspora pretty much all my life. Um, my parents left Afghanistan and then I need six war, um, after which I was born, so I wasn't even born there. I've been part of the Canadian diaspora for about 16 years now. I studied political science in my undergrad. Right now I'm trying to study for the LSAT. Hopefully I'll be going to law school. And your parents, where are they currently right now? Um, currently, right now, they're here with me in Canada. I came here in 2006. I was born in Pakistan, which is the neighboring country to Afghanistan, who were taking um, immigrants or refugees at the time when the war was happening in the 90s. I was born there. My upbringing, I remember we lived in Peshawar, which was a part of Afghanistan at one point. So moving there, a lot of the people that I was surrounded with were also my Afghan migrants. So my upbringing wasn't so different um, in that city in particular. But once we moved from that city to Islamabad, it was a little bit different. I personally didn't face a lot of racism or any type of that stuff, but my parents would, um, especially by the police. So that was just not fond memories for him to think back to. Um, I came to Canada when I was nine or 10 years old. It was really hard to basically adjust to the system here because, you know, I was pretty much, I didn't know any English. Um, I knew enough English to just get, like say hellos and goodbye, stuff like that. I struggled for a long time to basically fit in, but eventually I found my place. For my parents, however, fortunately, and I guess my privilege is now my guilt, that I didn't get to see a lot of the things that did, does happen down there, that did happen then and is happening right now. But I have lived it in memories of my parents um, and my older siblings who were present at the Afghan war that was happening in the 90s as well. So a lot of the memories that they gave basically has given me trauma as well because just listening to that, just knowing that somebody so close to me went through that and that it could have been me as well, just continues to live with me every day. And to the degree that you are comfortable sharing any stories of your family? My mom telling me she remembers being very young um, at the time and just having, I think, my only, my oldest sister at the time, they would have to find basically like places like their basement or caves that they would have back home. Um, and they just have to go down and stay there for days because there was like, you know, a people coming to the door asking to see how many people live there, how many women in particular live in the house. Um, there was bombs and stuff falling everywhere, right? There was rockets. So to also stay, stay safe from that, they would have to stay in a dungeon um, for days. Um, and they would just, sometimes they would get food, sometimes they wouldn't, but they couldn't leave because of safety issues. So. I've heard so, a lot of stories like that from all our relatives. Another story that particularly stood out to me that I just can never get out of my head was um, one of my aunts telling me that one of their neighbors had no males in their family. The lady that had two daughters lived there by herself. Um, she basically left her husband because he was abusive. So he she moved out and was living next door to them by themselves. There were just three ladies in the house and they were witness that um, Taliban would literally come to their house every night and stay their night um, and they couldn't do anything because obviously they also fit for their life right and basically the neighbor would come to their house and basically cry and say well they come every night asking for food and so we don't even have enough food for ourselves um, they're asking to marry my younger daughter she had an older daughter but her younger daughter was much younger like maybe 12 13 
I'm not sure the age, but they would ask um, to take her, basically get her married and stuff. And then they would stay the night all the time. Now, I don't know what happened in those nights that would, they would stay, but eventually they took the younger daughter um, from them. And, and then eventually they came back for the other daughter. And so uh, there was a point where the mom was like, um, you know what, like I have nothing left. I left my husband for my safety, but I put my daughter's safety in jeopardy. So I have nothing to live, like, you know, nothing left to live for. So I'm going to give away myself to them as well. And then she, one day she just disappeared and they never found her again. That gives me goosebumps just to hear about that story. And for listeners who may not know too much about the Taliban and what they do, is this a one-off occurrence of targeting women? Uh, can you paint a, a bit of a historical representation of if this is a common occurrence or not? Yes, uh, it's 100% a common occurrence. Uh, it's happening right now as well. Um, the media, they're basically portraying this image to the media right now that they have changed. They have somehow progressed and they're more open-minded right now. I'm not sure why people are falling for these things because people that are freelance journalists that are still talking and reporting from the ground are saying otherwise. There's families saying otherwise. So I'm not sure why the Western media is only covering the particular parts of the actual Taliban just saying, you know what, um, we're not anything like the old Taliban. We, we're going to let women go to work. We're going to let girls go to school. Um, we have no issue with that, but that's not the case. I feel like it's just a show. Like they did this in the 90s. Welcome well, to the Voice Podcast. At first podcast. they were very, a podcast like, oh, we'll let you do this, we'll let you do that. But then only to get intel on who's working with who's working with foreign, um, the country, know, foreign like countries who are spies, stuff like that. And once they and found that out, they executed everyone. They went back to how their ways were. Girls couldn't go to school. They were girls between the ages of 12 to 40 were getting married and used as sex slaves. They weren't given a choice to get married. They were just taken from their homes. These are common occurrences that's, that's happened in the 90s and will happen today too. I truly believe it. I don't think they have changed one bit. These are barbaric, evil people. I just wanted to point out that this has nothing to do with religion. Um, when they use Sharia law to implement things like this, it is it paints the, a very wrong picture to the Western world um, because this is a, at all not the religion. If I could tell you Sharia is probably down here and the law that they impose is right here. They've made their own laws at this point. Nothing that they do is right in that religion that they're trying to represent. The point is that U.S. is the reason we got invaded in the beginning, right? If it wasn't for the U.S., if it wasn't them thinking that the 9-11 had something to do with the Afghan nationals, which it didn't, I would like to point out not a single person that was involved in the 9-11 incident Afghan, not, not to this day they found that out, right? Obviously, the Afghan people don't really like American presence in the country, although to a certain extent that, you know, gives them some type of safety, the war that goes between uh, non-state actors in the country, not just the Taliban, but other non-state actors, or as they like to call themselves freedom fighters, with the government and um, and the U.S., there's a lot of bloodshed. The casualties are the normal Afghan people that are dying, right? They're ordinary people, and they people just, just want to live peacefully. They want to hear bombs. They don't want to think about their their kids dying when they step out of the house right they're they're like i said at this point it's become so normalized that 
when I talk to my cousins back home, they're like, yeah, okay, well, if I die, I die. Like, that's that's the reality of life here. I cannot not go outside of the house because I'm scared, you know? For them, it's become normalized. To argue that the Afghan people down there, like Taliban, it only has to do with the fact that they don't have to hear bombs every two seconds, right? They don't have to fear for rockets. Yeah, these people are going to come to their house, take their girls, you know? They're, they're not 100% safe in that sense, but at least these people show up to the door. They don't just throw rockets at them that they don't see and they, they can't anticipate that it's coming right obviously like every other country there are conservatives in that country who are pro-talib and those people are i would just say it's just a sad excuse to be a human being because they're just selfish and they only think for themselves and that's what it is at the end of the day the religion does not impose the laws that they're imposing on themselves um anybody who could pick a book and read about islam wouldn't know that what they're imposing on these people is not true Islam. They've made their own rules. A prime example I'll give you, the reason they have so much funding and so much money and so much power is because they use the opium that grows in the country to run a, a drug cartel, right? That's the reason they have most of their money. Now, doesn't your religion disagree with that? <laughs> like, where is that where you draw the line? Uh, you're acting all religious and you're implementing Sharia law. Okay, but Sharia law also says not to give people drugs. You're selling drugs all over the world. You know, having this many, like, millions and millions of people are addicted to heroin every day. And even in Afghanistan, like, a huge percentage of the country are drug addicts because of this, right? And... It's just funny to me that people would argue that this is religious based because they don't see these other aspects to it. It has nothing to do with religion. It's all where it's very, very, very much related to how where Afghanistan is located. Look at the resources that they have down there. If it wasn't for those things, this many non-state and state actors that we're surrounded with wouldn't be involved in the war. They're all making money out of it. This has nothing to do with religion. That's just the propaganda that they want to hide their agenda with. One of the big arguments for the American citizens that say, we spend so much money down there, they haven't achieved anything, just come back. We don't want to be wasting any taxpayer money. Um, Please, I'm sorry, do you not know your government? They would not go anywhere where they don't see potential like income, right? They've made more money than they've wasted there. They're not stupid. This is the US military you're talking about. So it is really sad that people just don't read the other side of the argument just because they're like, no, we've wasted money there. And I understand that this is a taxpayer money and mundane people don't have time to read up on all this information. But at least if you're going to argue something like that to the Afghan people who know the reality of our people living there day in, day out, should at least read up on that. And just to be a little bit more explicit, when you're saying that the U.S. is making money when they were in Afghan, are you referring to the opium? Yes, the opium and they have, they're selling arms and stuff to the Taliban. As you would know, there is several and several proof that they've met with the Taliban um, outside of Afghanistan without the gov Afghan government. Um, you know, they have not let the Afghan government know. They have not let any social worker down there that doesn't even work for the government know that they were meeting with Taliban behind their back to, you know, negotiate some type of peace deal, which happened in Doha, by the way. I am sure you've seen it on the news. I was going to ask you about the trigger event, which was the U.S. retreating from Afghanistan from 20 mm -hmm. years being in Afghanistan. It's not crystal clear. And the thing is, it's not black or white, right? I'm not necessarily thrilled that they left and let the Taliban take over because they did do that. 
Like they want to play stupid and say that the Afghan military ran away, but that is not what happened. That is not the news we're getting from the ground from actual Afghans. They're reporting that the U.S. military asked them to stand down because they wanted to retreat, they wanted to leave, and they don't want to basically not have anything to do with them and let them, you know, they just said, let them take over um, because we're leaving and let them just do their thing because we've been here for long enough and we haven't gotten anything done. We're leaving, so just stand down and don't get killed. That's the instruction that they were given. And this is coming from several different military personnel in Afghanistan. And it's a proof that it is not false reports that are coming up because several different people across the country are reporting the same thing. Now, you can't tell me that while the, the Taliban is taking over, different people are calling each other and making up the same story, right? So given the events that have happened, what's the ideal next step in terms of, I know that seeking refugee status is something that your family did. Um, how easy is that? Is that the best solution possible? What's the ideal scenario? Well, unfortunately, it is not easy at all. Even for us, like even when I came here, which was in 2006, things were better in Afghanistan. At that time, they were seeing a little bit of calmness in the country. Um, it took us a couple of years to be accepted into Canada. And for that, my uncle had to get four or three or four people to sign on our like basically our papers um, to basically kind of say like, you know, these people are reliable people. They're good people. We're going to take care of them when they come here. Just the work that goes into bringing people over now it's really hard like we had to wait a couple of years for them to basically accept this now given the circumstances right now it's even harder from my point of view like if people want to come and seek refuge in canada and canada has been you know related into the war they've been in afghanistan they took up the troops in 2018 so they can't really help um in that sense but if they're bringing people over that's amazing but my point remains is that you can't resettle a whole country right that can't be the long-term solution for this because that's at that point you'll be just giving the country to all those people that are taking over um and a lot of people don't want to leave because they want to help develop their own country where they they were born and they grew up to with their own people right um and if it wasn't for this they would have done that the country would have been built it would be doing much better than some of these western countries are doing right now even though they're first world countries it's been 25 years of just resettling people, but you can't resettle the entire population of Afghanistan. So what is the solution? Now, I don't know. I'm I'm not intelligent enough to come up with a perfect answer, but I just know that resettling is not a long-term, it's not a long-term solution for any foreign like military to be there forever, right? Because that that can happen either. And I'm I'm sure the the Afghan people are not gonna appreciate that there as well. It would be interesting to see what unfolds from here on. In terms of Canada, I know that we talked a lot about the US's role in Afghanistan and how they have played a huge role in the way that Afghanistan is today. What has Canada's role historically been and how would you anticipate Canada playing a role in the future? I actually don't know too much about Canada's involvement in Afghanistan. What I do know is that, um, and the things that the U.S. has done, it's well known that our neighbors have been doing these things and they've never once said in the international platform in the G7 or any of the UN like meetings or anything like that where world leaders meet, they have never opposed what the U.S. has been doing in Afghanistan. So directly or indirectly, they are kind of the per perpetrator, right? They're kind of, when you just stand and let people do things, you're kind of like, you're in the crime as well. So in that sense, they're definitely 
um, also involved. Um, they they were there. Their military, the, the Canadian military, was there until 2018. They took out all their military presence from 2018. So um, they haven't been active on the ground in that sense. But I'm hoping. I'm not sure if this was, you know. Um, kind of like a token to use for the new upcoming election. Uh, but Prime Minister Trudeau did say that he does not recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan and never will. So I, I appreciate that considering what Joe Biden has been saying on TV. Um, that's a big step. That's something really bold for Canadian Prime Minister to do. Um, they usually don't disagree with America. So it's a good thing to see. I just don't know if it's just to get votes. Um, he kind of just said that, but never really got around to how he's helping. And I know that a lot of people would argue that we're taking in 20,000 Afghans, what about that? But there's no clear instruction to who they're accepting and not accepting. And I've been hearing reports that those people will not be allowed to come in until 2023. Well, we don't know if they're gonna survive that long. What is Canada actually doing to help? Yeah, and on that note, do you have any political parties that you think have done well for the Afghanistan uh, people and are truly good individuals that are not tokenizing them? Unfortunately, not. I don't know one single party or a member of parliament in Canada um, that has done that. On the current day headlines and what we've been hearing about in Afghanistan, is there anything else that you wanted to address before I move on to your personal stories? Um, sure. I just wanted to say there are certain things I want to say. One is that I've been seeing a lot of people focus on the African women and girls. And I know that because of that, like they are in like most danger. They're being taken away. They're being, you know, used in the sex trade and the God knows what, right? They are definitely in danger. But what I like to see more of is that people not painting the Afghan men as somebody who's barbaric, those people also need help. They also need to get out of there. A lot of them want to be educated and want to help the country, right? But they're kind of painted in this thing that just because they're men, they don't have any emotional toll that the war takes on them or anything. Like, we're not truly feminists if we're not advocating for everybody the same. Another thing I want to highlight is the minorities, the diversity that Afghanistan has is beyond just Muslim, is beyond the Muslim sects like Shias and Ismailis. We have Hindus there, we have Sikhs there, we've had Jews there. They're all in danger, and they these people are trying to erase our diversity. And that is one of the biggest things about being an Afghan is that we take pride in is it because we're so diverse. I wanted to add a little bit of a persona behind what it means to you to be an Afghan individual and an Afghan mm-hmm. ethnicity. Well, the, the only word that I will use for the Afghan culture is resistance, really. We're just so resistant. Like we just, I like I said, my parents, ran away from something that's still happening. I was born after they ran away. It's been a long time. My 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 oldest sibling is about 35, 36, and she's seen those things happen. So I imagine it's been happening for over 30 years and nothing's changed. And all these people are still getting up, going to school, going to work, you know, doing like everyday normal things, knowing in the back of their head that they might not come home alive, that they might not even find their body. So if there's one thing that I can, the one word that I could use for the Afghan community and growing up Afghan is just being resilient. I've always, always 
seeing the Afghan community as people who are very strong and very hardworking. Unfortunately, every community has bad apples and people tend to focus on those bad apples. And unfortunately, we've been painted really wrongly in the Western media as every other minority group. But the Afghan people, if they're known for something, it's it's how, uh, you know, not kind they are to guests that come to their homes and how resilient they are and how hardworking they are. And that's what it means to me to be an Afghan. And how has that resiliency shaped where you're headed? I know that you're going into law. Has that resiliency played a role into why you're going into law? Because my whole life has been shaped by technically war, right? My family left my home country because of war. I had to live in different countries to be able to find a safe haven. I had to, we had to keep moving from place to place to finally find something. We finally found that in Canada. The way it's shaped me is I'm an empath. Like I like I I thrive on helping people. Um, I've spent my entire youth and adulthood life just you know volunteering for different nonprofits, working for different nonprofits, helping in, in any way I can. Not just the Afghan community, but other communities as well. I went into studying political science because it was kind of decided for me to go into that. It was my passion because so much of my ideology was in that. And I want to go into law because I want to study immigration law and I want to be able to help more people find justice and peace and a safe home. In the meantime, I am also working in NGOs um, that, you know, help, help with victims of trauma, help people like migrants and refugees to resettle in countries that they're not really welcome in, even though, you know, they come here, but they find it very challenging to, you know, find a home here. So I kind of, I'm kind of the liaison for that. I kind of in the between person like, hey, I can relate to you, but I can also relate to this people. You'll be okay, it just takes time. So that's what this shaped me into and I couldn't be in a better place. Just on the nonprofit side, you said that you're involved with quite a few of them. Um, yeah. How do you go about picking which ones you want to align yourself with? What I really see with the, the kind of impact they're making. So right now I'm working with, they really help people who've gone through like wars and have seen some really, really like scary things that we can't even imagine, right? They really help those people with um, there's anything that they need help with, like like giving them social social work help, um, giving them into mental therapy, um, physical therapy, so that it could really help them get out of the psychological traumas and things that they go through. And I know how much that shaped my parents and their personalities and how that trauma has transferred into me and who I am as a human being. Growing up, I didn't understand all of that, right? I had all this resentment and all this anger and I didn't know where it came from because I didn't see any of those things but it was still transferred to me like physically and that's something that people don't talk about enough that people you can actually transfer that over even if you haven't lived through it right so I align myself with CCBT because they actually help people like that they help children of war and victims of war that are not that weren't physically in the war but are still being affected because I I could relate to that and the other non-NGOs that I've helped with are usually with immigrants and refugees who come here who need translation help or who need um, help with navigating the school system. It was very hard for me to do that when I came, so I really just wanted to help people 
um, make that easier for them. So a lot of the places that I volunteer for or I work at has to do with the school system, with how to navigate what social services is available to you and who can help you with what and stuff like that. And just on transferring that trauma piece, because I think that's a really interesting piece worth diving into. Do you have an example of what that would look like? Is that in maybe the way that your parents spoke to you and the actions that they did? What does transferring trauma look like for you? Well, when you grow up in a country that's constantly, you know, in a state of war, you don't see a lot of your family because, you know, they're doing their own thing and sometimes they die and stuff. And the feelings and emotions are not processed the right way. So then you tend to take that out in, on, in other ways on other people. For example, my mom is not very, like, she has a hard time showing emotion. And that's because of how the kind of household that she grew up in during the and how like distant her parents were with her and her siblings were and what kind of like things that she's seen happen. It took us a long time to kind of work through that and she's getting better at it, but that work needs to be done. But when people are constantly in a state of war like the children of Afghanistan are and have been for two decades now, it is hard to heal, right? It is hard to heal in the circumstances that is kind of causing you that trauma over and over and over, and over again. Um, and something else that was happening to at least my family at the time was um, when we were moving to Pakistan, my, my father had a hard time finding jobs there as an Afghan refugee, right? In Pakistan, Afghans have probably the lowest jobs like we do in Canada here, right? As migrants, our parents come with degrees and PhDs, but they have to drive cars and work at restaurants to get by because it's not recognized. And the same thing happened there. My dad, he was a professor in Kabul and he taught physics, but when he went to Pakistan, he couldn't even find any good job. So he would have to go back to Afghanistan, even though there was war, there was Taliban, there was this many risks, he'd have to go back and work there and then come back every six months and stuff to be with us. And I kind of grew up without my father's presence there for a lot of my life, right? And that really takes a mental toll on you because you don't you don't have a father figure growing up um and that is part of a lot of the trauma that i have so and i'm sure it's much worse for other kids because their parents actually die and they're left you know to other family members who don't take care of them and then gone with what how they end up how do you feel about having your immediate family here with you in canada but also having family back home in such a turmoil situation Honestly, it's it's really hard to describe in words. Um, even though we're not there um, and we're not in immediate danger, um, we have all these privileges, you know, right in the tip of our hand. It still feels basically my privilege has become my guilt because I constantly think that, you know, that person could be me. There's somebody down there that could have achieved so much more than I have, you know. Um, that could probably be somebody who could come up with the cure of cancer. I don't know, something incredible, extraordinary, right? So it just feel I feel guilty all the time because I'm like, they could be me and I could be them. Like we could switch, like I was just, why was I so fortunate? So I feel like a lot of us feel like that. And, you know, just even though I'm so grateful that my immediate family is here, um, I'm not connected with a lot of my family back there because when I came here, I was really young. So I kind of grew up in the system here. But my siblings are still in contact with a lot of my cousins and a lot of my family. And I hear from them the kind of things that they go through and the kind of like danger that they're in the, and how they feel. Right. 
So even though we're here, we still feel that physical pain of just having to live that life that they do down there. And it's unfortunate because we can't get them any help right now, whether it's financial, emotional, or any severe helplessness. Like you just don't know what to do and you don't know how to digest all these emotions you're feeling because half the time you don't even know what those emotions are. And so for those of us that are in Canada um, and are looking for ways to help out what's been going on, what would you advise us to do? I think the biggest thing and one of the first things that people could do is really educate themselves on the matter. Um, I feel like a lot of people use arguments that they read on the internet or on any, like or they see on the news or see in any uh, other social media platforms. They use those arguments without knowing the background and the context. Um, one of the biggest things that I would urge people to do is really, really sit there and educate yourself, listen to all sorts of points of views, and then come up with your own argument and your own reasoning for whatever you're about to do after that. But just don't take what you see on Twitter or on Instagram or on news, especially in the Western news, as the truth. And just listen to Afghan voices, amplify them like you would to any other minority groups. The other thing you can do is really help send, like if you can, I'm not asking anybody for money, but if you can, whatever small amount, they're in dire need of aid. But the thing is, like, I don't know how much of that is really going to reach them, right? Because it's People are blocking off everything and I don't know going on to like the future what's gonna happen because today was the deadline for all the foreigners to get out so comes tomorrow we don't know what to expect another thing that I would really urge Canadians to do is really ask their government what they could do to help because they've never been one to call out the US for the things that they have done to the Afghan people it's been 25 years of the U.S. presence in, in Afghanistan and they haven't helped with anything. They've spent all this money, but unfortunately, there's nothing to look back. It's unfortunate. And especially since there's a, you know, election coming up, make sure you hold them accountable to whatever they're going to promise, because we know that these people promise anything. But when it comes to action, they never fall through with it. Was there anything that you wanted to say broadly about what's been happening or about yourself or anything at all? Honestly, it's just us, somebody who's grown up in the culture, it's just really hard to see your people suffering for so long. Like other people, even myself, right? I get up and I worry about such a small, normal thing. And to think that people have to get up and they don't have clean water, they don't have food for weeks, they have to constantly worry about stepping out of their house to put food in their house to you know get a normal education it's so sad to see and there's just it's not just afghanistan so much of the middle east is going through this right and these foreign countries like the u.s and the, their allies like the people that they fund like pakistan who continues to fund terrorism in afghanistan what have we done to you? It's the people you're killing. It's the people you're making money out of. It's the little children that are dying. It's not the people that you want to kill. I don't understand how it is okay to make money out of people's dead bodies. I don't know if you read an article that The Economist put out, but people had put investments into weaponry and the war in Afghanistan in, in 2001, and now they're millionaires. To think that 
there are children from two decades like they're just children after children born into poverty they don't know what school is they don't know what a, a normal family structure is they're born into this world and then they're constantly constantly put through all these trials the afghan children haven't even gotten one second to breathe and just heal from what they've seen because they continue there's something new tomorrow they've just seen trauma for 25 plus years there hasn't been a single moment of healing and i just want to understand especially the the nationals that might be listening to this i just want to ask them why is it that it is okay for you to defend a government that constantly kills people we make the government as people right the government doesn't rule us we make the government so why can't we hold them accountable for the things that they do it's one thing to be patriotic and be proud of a country that you're living in that you're part of i understand that i understand that as an afghan but the government does not represent the entire country even the afghan government has been corrupt over and over again because the people that are elected are chosen by these people that are funding the war because they know that these people will let it fly they don't actually work for the people what can we really do? I need answers. I can't come up with them. I, I'm not competent enough for that. I just want to know that there's at least one person that can come up with an answer and actually at least put it out there for other people to know, even if we're not going to implement that, even if we don't have enough power to. We just need the world to get up and hold people accountable. Why does the U.S. think it's okay to, you know, negotiate a peace deal with a bunch of people that have constantly killed people. They recently bombasted a university in Kabul that had the future of Afghanistan there. They were studying day and night to build that country. But now they're all dead because these people bombed them. And now you let them take over the country for what? And I know there are people back home, if they ever listen to this, there are people that will not agree with, with what I'm saying at all because being part of the diaspora, I don't know exactly what's going on down there, right? I can't even imagine what they're going through and what they think, they might not agree with a lot of things that I'm saying. And that's fair because I can't speak for them because I have not lived their experiences. But the point is that what I can say confidently is that if there are Afghans down there that are not necessarily unhappy that these people took over is because they're tired of the bloodshed. They don't want people dying. They're okay with living under such extreme government that they, if they do anything, they're dead, but at least they don't have to hear rockets every five minutes. It's not that they don't have a choice, but to be okay with what's happening because they don't have the power to fight it. Unfortunately, we hear news from back home from people on the ground that say that a lot of the equipment that the U.S. military was supposed to give the Afghan military to fight with was actually not given to them. A lot of the equipment that they have is really old equipment that they had themselves, which doesn't make sense considering the Taliban have like the latest, latest technologies. How are they meant to fight those people? And the casualties that the military has. President Joe Biden went on air and said, well, the Afghan military gave up. Well, why don't you talk about the fact that you asked them to? Why don't you talk about the fact that you didn't give them proper equipment to fight with? Why don't you talk about the fact that you made a peace deal behind their backs? There are videos of military personnel crying, saying, I will not give up this fight. I will not give up my weapon until, the, until I'm alive, I will fight. Why should I give my country to these people that are trying to erase our ideology? They got rid of our flag. They made a new flag. They're, they're making a new name in the country. Like, what is all this about? If it's about just taking the government, why are you changing the flag? People are not asking these questions. They're trying to erase us. They're trying to erase our history, 
our diversity, our ideology, everything. At some point, they're gonna try to erase our language. There are people that are saying that a lot of them don't even speak the two main languages, which is Farsi and Pashto. They don't even speak those languages. There's just so much going on that you don't know what to believe and what not to believe. But these are good questions to be thinking about, you know, to ask powerful people about, well, you know, why don't you go find out if these people are actually Taliban? Because why can't they speak the local languages? It's truly, truly sad. I, honestly, I I often say to my coworkers, my family, anybody that I really talk to, this stuff, I'm like, why doesn't the world just end? Because really, the world could just use no humans here. We're not doing anything good for the world. So why do we deserve to be here? If the world ends, all of these things will end and just it. And then people are like, don't talk like that, you know? I'm like, but really, where's the hope here? Another thing I just wanted to say is we really appreciate other minorities that have come forward, you know, amplify our voices with us, ask us how we're feeling. Um, if they could help with anything, we really, really appreciate that. And to the ones who have not, I really urge you to do so because we, we really just have each other. And even if we're from very diverse ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, different parts of the world, different languages, different religion, at the end of the day, we all should stand for what is right and justice and we've always been there the afghan community has been there for every other minority we've been there for the palestinian people we've been there for the black community the asian community we really have and i just want to urge you to not look into the bad if you've had bad experiences with the afghan community i truly apologize um those people do not represent the entire community and i would just really urge you guys to stand with us at a time that we really need you a finishing note would be, please, if you see an Afghan, ask them how they're doing. Give them a hug. Really get them, get them some mental health. I would urge the government or any other social organization that are that you know that specialize in mental health to really reach out to the community and just try to help them in that sense. Because I can tell you that we're not doing well, and having to get up and go to work, work all day like a normal person, go to school, do assignments meet all these deadlines it's not easy and even though I don't want to use that as a way to you know get away from responsibilities I understand but at times like this people should be understanding and I would urge people to be more understanding and to give them spaces to talk and heal and you know not having to worry about work or meeting assignment deadlines and stuff like that so please just be kind that's all I'm asking and just to end with, um, we are having a protest on August 28th um, at City Hall from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. We will be walking from City Hall to the U.S. Consulate and back. Um, please, please show up there to support us and to amplify our voices to get the international community and leaders to listen to us because we need help. We need you guys now. I hope to see you there. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, leave a comment or review. And if you don't like what you hear, let me know as well. Hope to see you soon. Bye.